Hello and welcome to Angles, an LCMS Youth Ministry podcast. I'm host Reverend Mark Kiesling and I'm with DCE Juliana Schultz. We are here to bring parents, church workers, and lay leaders discussions and resources to help your youth ministry meet its end goal, which is young people who are disciples of Jesus Christ for life. Today, we continue our short series on apologetics and discuss everyday issues and topics that through the Holy Spirit, God's word, and his gift of reason, we are able to give a defense of the Christian faith. So LCMS Youth Ministry has had a busy summer of attending district youth gatherings, LCMS servant events, higher things, and preparing for convention at the end of the summer. So thank you for your patience with a little irregular posting of episodes. And I'm also running this episode solo with Juliana traveling and connecting with uh, youth ministry across the Synod. And I'm excited again to have some great guests return for a conversation. We are continuing our series on a Christian apologetics. Dr. Brad Allison and Pastor Joe Cox were on to discuss worldview and then Faith Spellbring discussed the role of a apologetics, and youth ministry and Christian education. Today, we'll discuss some everyday or reoccurring topics that you or your youth may face and how we bolster our understanding of those issues in our lives. And again, diving into these issues can be daunting, and that's why as we wanted to bring on some great resources for the podcast. And in just our short time here, we will just be scratching the surface of the questions youth might face and also the resources God's word and great Christian thinkers provide. You got to hear a longer bio of our guests a couple of episodes ago, but here's just a refresher. Dr. Brad Alice is an assistant professor of education at Concordia University, Wisconsin. He's a frequent Bible study teacher and speaker at local, state, and national youth gatherings, as well as youth worker, teacher, and pastor conferences. His family lives in Germantown, Wisconsin. Reverend Joe Cox is campus pastor and director of curriculum at Lutheran High School South in St. Louis, Missouri. He teaches English and theology and coaches the school's mock trial teams. Joe is married to Barb and they have two adult children. So I'm talking to two educators here. So what's been the highlight of your summers, travel and other things going on? Reverend Cox. Well, yeah, as an educator, summer vacation, right? Um, had the opportunity to do some traveling, see some states that I hadn't been to. Oh, nice. So got up and hit the Dakotas okay. and, and actually finally crossed the border into Nebraska. I have never really? been to Nebraska before in my life. Okay. okay. I was saving it for the 50th state just because that entertained me. <laughs> That's right. So, and then got to do a little travel abroad and in, in, uh, to France and spend a little time in New York on the way back. So Fantastic. just spending good time with the wife and uh, enjoying a chance of seeing God's world yeah. in a different perspective. That's great. Well, Dr. Alice, I know you've spent some time in Nebraska, so that was not the 50th <laughs> state for you, but how about you? What were some highlights for the summer? Uh, we had a great summer. Uh, so far, my wife and two daughters, we had a little vacation getaway uh, to the Wisconsin Dells area. Nice. All right. We did some swimming, some hiking, some uh, uh, tubing, and uh, just having a great old time at a, at a very cheap Verbo. It was my in-laws. <laughs> nice. That's right. <laughs> Glad you were able to find some days that worked on their schedule. <laughs> it was perfect. They were gone. We were in, and it was just a great time. So, yeah. Perfect. Well, we are excited to continue our conversation about apologetics. Um, again, you guys were on to talk about Christian worldview, kind of that baseline piece of apologetics. Um, and then also had Faith Spellbring on to discuss uh, just that role of a Christian apologetics in youth ministry and Christian education. Uh, some of those things certainly that um, are wonderful about and how we use it to educate our young people, but then also prepare them to uh, give a confession of the gospel um, and to speak to Christ. But then also too, some of the places where how we help make sure we center apologetics well in our Christian education too. So it was interesting. Um, I was reading uh, CPH's uh, uh, new Luther's small catech or large catechism, excuse me, uh, that they uh, put out. And one of the essays that was uh, put together was by uh, Dr. Angus Manoj that 
Brad, you know him well, a professor of philosophy at Concordia, Wisconsin. And uh, he was wrote an essay that was called The First Commandment and Apologetics. And it reminded me of our conversations that we had. And he first talks about how do we honor Christ over apologetics or to make sure we don't honor apologetics over Christ. And so he talks about um, this is great, uh, straight from the essay, that first, to honor Christ means we place our full confidence in Christ, not in apologetics excel, itself. We are saved by the person and work of Christ, not the work of apologetics. And a little bit later, he writes, uh, second, to honor Christ means that the purpose of apologetics is to point beyond itself to Christ. Like John the Baptist, the apologist works to prepare his audience for someone greater than himself. And then this was uh, really the thing that stood out to me that brought it so, I thought, uh, succinctly. One of the primary functions of apologetics is preparation for the gospel. As the law in general cannot save, but may convict the heart of sin so that the gospel is good news, so apologetics cannot save, but may remove intellectual obstacles to hearing the gospel as truth. Apologetics can also aid believers who encounter challenges to their faith. While reason cannot create faith, it can help believers to hold on to their faith. That was a great uh, short uh, summary of some of the things that we are talking around apologetics and what an aid and a benefit it can be to talk about um, these issues, especially as we see young people being inundated in the information age in which we live. So thank you uh, for taking the time again to be a part of this conversation and lead us through some of these topics. So we, I put together kind of a list of some questions, um, maybe that are maybe some big issue topics that young people may encounter, or we encounter too, about that get to some of the baseline things in which we talk about uh, uh, confessing our faith and defending our faith. But we did want to start to talking a lot, a little bit about maybe the tension that we have as you as educators, as you talk with youth ministry practitioners, is that quite often the maybe gateway to get to the talk of these bigger issues are cultural issues that are happening in our world. I want to spend a little bit of time maybe talking about that. And we might get to these cultural issues, uh, but do you have any reflections on that and how uh, those questions coming up, very specific things in our news and in our world, on TikTok, whatever it might be, um, are leading us to some of these bigger maybe topics that we'll talk about today? Uh, Pastor Cox. Yeah. So in response to that too, let me, in a sense, use uh, Dr. Manuja's essay as a little bit of a diving board, is the recognition that when we're talking about apologetics, it doesn't always necessarily have to precede gospel proclamation mm, mm -hmm. that um, when these cultural issues come up, one of the things I'm going to do clearly is point someone to Christ, to Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection as God's answer and solution for the sin problem that we have. And oftentimes what apologetics does is it enables me to answer those uh, well-meaning, legitimate questions mm -hmm. people have as they start asking questions about how do I know this is, here's the key word, true. Mm -hmm. How do I know that this is real? And behind that are those cultural questions that we're dealing with. And again, I think they change from time to time. The questions that our, our teens are wrestling with mm -hmm. today aren't entirely the questions that maybe we're being wrestled with um, let's say maybe during the 1970s when there was more of an attention um, to what was going on in Vietnam and so forth. Mm -hmm. So today, what are we wrestling with? We're having issues of um, human sexuality mm -hmm. and wrestling with what seems to be a normalcy on social media in terms of uh, transgender questions mm -hmm. and so forth. And to some degree, what we have is we have moved full scale into an era where we're really led more by our feelings mm -hmm. 
than we are by our reason, um, let alone our submission and faith to scripture. And so recognizing that we have to, in a sense, help our students backtrack and recognize that while those feelings are very real in the sense that they are affecting you, mm-hmm. um, behind that, we have to ask questions of the truth of the gospel, of the reality of a world that was created and declared by God to be perfectly good Mm -hmm. and yet has fallen into sin and how God's revelation speaks to our reality today, which takes us full scale back to that proclamation of Jesus Christ. Great. Uh, Dr. Alice, any thoughts on that? Well, I I just totally agree with what Pastor Cox said there. And, and for example, the postmodern claim that there is no truth and everything is subjective, uh, constructed by myself or the, the social group to which I belong, that's key to understanding, as he said, the, the ideas of sexual orientation or gender identity that are so prevalent today. So if you can get down to that foundational question, is there truth, and then understand this postmodern objection to it, then you can see how it manifests in all these different specifics. Absolutely. So we're going to start with one of those real easy questions um, as we talk about apologetics. And you've obviously come up from both of you about this whole concept of truth. So what are maybe some baseline things that we help young people walk through around those question of does truth exist? And then maybe along that way of how can Christians claim existence of an objective truth? In class, both on the high school level and the college level, what, what I'll ask students is, can you name something for me that's true for everyone anytime, anywhere. Give me something universal that's true for everybody anytime, anywhere. And so uh, if, if they have ideas, they'll throw them out. And normally they're things like this. Two plus two is four. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, uh, gravity. Right. Uh, the idea that you, you can't have logical contradictions. Right. You can't be a married bachelor. Okay. And so uh, there's things that we can wrap our brains around and then we can talk about, yeah, in philosophy, there's this correspondence theory of truth. Truth fits facts, logic, and reality. And so, yeah, we subscribe to truth because this is what we see in our world, but God's inspired inerrant word is very clear on that. The idea of truth is all over in it. And I think most of us are familiar with John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the Mm -hmm. truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So yes, as Christians, we believe in truth, and truth fits facts, logic, reality. We see it in math. We see it in science. We see it in everyday life. Right. Yeah, and as I work with students, um, one of the things I try to really hammer home on this particular question is is a simple definition of truth. And this is uh, what you mentioned in terms of the correspondence theory. Uh, Truth is that which agrees with reality. And just simply looking for where does reality point us? How do we know where reality points us? We look for the evidence that's around us. We use our senses to observe what's going on. And ultimately, as we look at that and get to the question of how is it that Christians claim to have this access to truth, to reality, is we go back to scripture and specifically that scripture reveals, I'm going to keep, you know, hammering home, pun intended, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who claimed to be God and then proved it through his resurrection. And when we investigate those claims, what we find is the best explanation for the empty tomb of Jesus Christ Mm 
is that he really did rise from the dead. And if we can trust him on that, because he proved it, then we can accept what he has to say when he puts his seal of approval on the rest of God's word, uh, the law, the prophets, etc. And so it's not so much a, I believe the Bible because the Bible tells me so, but I believe the Bible because Christ, who proved his divinity and his resurrection, has put his stamp of approval on Scripture. The one who created reality has given it to us and demonstrated who he was in that resurrection act. Great. Great. And I, I can imagine how that comes in. Like, I think we talked about this maybe a couple episodes back for a while. There was a phrase that was being known a lot that like, well, I'm going to speak my truth. Um, and again, where sometimes it's like, no, that's your opinion. And that's fine. You can speak that opinion. That's great. But then to be able to help students go back to like, well, what is the truth versus maybe what are opinions that are there and how do we have those conversations in our, our world with postmodernism, as you talked about, Dr. Alice, uh, that can be such a slippery thing to help our youth really engage into what is that concrete truth that we know in Jesus and his word. As you mentioned that too, one of the things that comes to mind is um, when students want to express their opinion. Mm -hmm. and, and again, I, I think it's natural for us to all assume that our opinions are true or else mm -hmm, right. we wouldn't have right, them. We right. would abandon mm -hmm. them. Um, but to have a relationship whereby I can challenge my students and ask them to defend yes. and likewise be open to them challenging me mm -hmm. and asking mm -hmm. me to defend my opinions mm -hmm. and provide the evidence to provide mm -hmm. the reasoning behind that and being open to where we see the evidence lacking or the reason falling apart mm -hmm. to say, I need to reevaluate this and I need to perhaps mm -hmm. look at a different way of explaining what I'm actually experiencing. Leads, leads to good critical thinking skills. Um, and those kind of conversations that can take place again in, in growing in our knowledge and understanding of the world around us um, and seeking that. So another question that around this piece with truth um, is what are some key arguments for, and again, maybe um, as we're running into uh, push, maybe uh, 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 arguments against our faith, those things that might say there's arguments against um, God's existence. So again, simplify, what are some key arguments for God's existence? Dr. Alice. Yeah. So when we talk about origins and the arguments for God's existence, I think there's three that we can bring up to people, a cosmological, a teleological, and a moral order argument. And so the cosmological one would say, uh, everything has a beginning. Wh who began the universe? All right. Uh, a teleological one would say, there's design in everything. Who designed it, right? And then finally, moral order. There, there's moral laws, and every law has a lawgiver. So, so who's that lawgiver? Mm -hmm. So this idea of who started everything, uh, who designed it with such intricacy and complexity, and then why is there morality? Why is there a thread running through all cultures? Uh, moral foundations theory points out there's five elemental moral themes that run through all cultures. Why is that? Well, we know from God's word, Romans 2, it, the law is written on our hearts. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of morality, where did it come from? Well, God put it in us because we were made in his image. And so this idea of beginning, this, I, this idea of order, this idea of morality, they speak to something greater than just matter. And if there's no God in the beginning, matter. And matter exploded and then formed everything. 
working in clockwork uh, perfection. And then matter came to life against the laws of science, right? <laughs> and then matter started to think and matter developed a moral code. And so these things are immaterial and yet matter developed those things. So that's how we can help people argue there's got to be something beyond matter and stuff. There are these things that we can wrestle with in terms of making an argument for the existence of God. Now, when we're dealing with these arguments, let's recognize that we can't stop there. <laughs> because what we haven't done yet is made the argument for the triune God, mm -hmm. um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as we profess in the Christian church. Mm -hmm. But I find that to be actually a benefit, if you will, because uh, as I like to focus on that correspondence theory, when something's true and something's real, it's going to have an effect on everything around it. And it's not just in God's revelation that we find that truth, mm -hmm. right? but the very fact that looking logically at the world in which we exist, there really is no legitimate way to escape a creator. Right. And that gives us a place to stand where even philosophically, scientifically, if we're just simply looking at the evidence, the imprint of God apart from his revelation of who he is that we have in scripture is there as the being who exists that surpasses all other, the, the uncreated who brought into creation, the universe. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing I love to see is, um, you know, watching documentaries or some things that are taking an evolutionary viewpoint of things and already uh, theories that were accepted as true science. When I was a kid growing up, this benefit of being older, they've already rejected those theories and like, oh, we've got new information that tells us this and be able to say that as Christians, we can say, yep, yep, great. What a blessing that as Christians, we can investigate very much the created world God's given to us and enjoy that and, and just see the depths and the intricacies of it, but yet also know the baseline of that. It's a created God and see like more of these discoveries they have, the more it points to a creator. <laughs> well, and, and the grand irony there, uh, if you look at the history of apologetics uh, that likes to get into the fact that our very scientific age was given rise by Christian yes, right. scientists who presumed order in reality yes. based yeah. on the order of God. And without that presupposition, science itself falls apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think as you take people to Romans 1, God's invisible qualities, his divine nature are clearly seen from what has been made. And as Pastor pointed out, that revealed knowledge of God has got to be given to people through the Bible. So you can take that natural knowledge from what we see. There's got to be something out there greater than us, but you got to point them to the Bible and help them understand the triune God, the God who created us, the God who saved us, the God who sanctified us. All right, so I'm going to turn a little bit here now to I'm um, still very vividly remember uh, being on the basketball court. Um, sometimes we'd get questions from my friends being a pastor's kid that I oftentimes failed in my good explanation of this, but I can still very much remember being asked by a friend, why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? And like you said, it was an honest question. I mean, mm -hmm. this was not trying to push me. This was not trying to put me in a box. 
my friend was really wrestling with that as he looked at what was going on in the world. So we're going to start with these questions about um, maybe a little bit get into the where evil comes from, how we understand evil and maybe suffering. Uh, but I'll throw this out. Why would a good God allow evil to exist? So again, I find this to be a grand irony as we look at the reality that Sin, of course, comes from man's rejection of God's will. And we go back to Genesis chapter 3, where we see it, everything unravel as God has placed Adam and Eve in this perfect world. And uh, they choose to attempt to be like God rather than to accept the good world that he's given them. And often, often, often ask that question, well, why did God even allow that to happen? And I think the grand irony is that his love is so great that he provided his people, and of course this is going to be tricky in a Lutheran context, mm -hmm. free will. Mm -hmm. But in their perfection, Adam and Eve, who were already in relationship with God, had the free will to reject. And if that didn't exist, in a sense, they're trapped and true love doesn't blossom. Mm. Um, to quote the great 20th century philosopher Sting, <laughs> you know, if you love somebody, set them free, <laughs> that it's not God's desire. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, Paul writing to St. Timothy makes it quite clear that God's will, God's desire is that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the mm -hmm. truth. But that like the parent who wants the child to grow so that the relationship grows, God allows that violation to occur, but maintains the dignity of the consequences that exist. And those consequences aren't hemmed in simply when they start to affect somebody who uh, wasn't involved in the first place. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's not like a little kid playing Monopoly and rolls the dice and dad comes up with some sort of crazy rule why that's a rollover because it was a negative consequence for the child. The true reality of sin is that the consequences have a universal implication in that all of creation is affected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think of uh, uh, what Pastor said about free will and, and I always use the illustration of well, God could have made us robots, and then we were forced to love him. But that's really not a relationship mm -hmm, then, is mm -hmm. it? And if you've ever seen the movie The Stepford Wives, a mm -hmm. perfect illustration of that, where, yeah, you can make a robot spouse, but they really don't love you because they're programmed. So God allowed Adam and Eve to have the dignity of free will. They chose to rebel against God, his creation, his perfection. And yet still in his love, he didn't obliterate them. He provided a way of salvation and that uh, the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to point people to. God, even in the midst of our sins, still has love for us, has patience, and is allowing this to go on. He's allowing us still to have the dignity of, of free will as uh, we, we, we live our lives up until Judgment Day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe uh, let's take it to that next point then. Then how do we discuss... Um, good things that happen to bad things. I mean, we can go through Proverbs and Psalms and see conversations about this. And then maybe when difficulty happens to quote unquote, good people um, or Christians, a little bit, how would you talk about those, uh, that philosophical thought for a young person? Yeah. Oftentimes for starters, the philosophical thought I think is really based more in a, not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do 
bad things happen to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, here mm-hmm. is where having relationship with the person mm-hmm. you're talking to is really helpful because on one level, sometimes whether we recognize it or not, we, we do these things to ourselves. Sometimes we are innocent bystanders, again, of the ramification of the sin of other people. Sometimes it may not even be the specific sin of another person, but recognizing that sin is such a contaminant mm-hmm. uh, that literally affects us to our DNA core. Uh, so maybe I'm talking to somebody who is wrestling with uh, the manifestation of a genetic disease. And just like the man born blind and, and the disciples asked Jesus, well, who sinned, he or, or his parents? Uh, it's not that one person sinned, but sin has had this contaminating effect that we're still wrestling with. And so that questions of fair oftentimes mm-hmm, come mm-hmm, up. And, mm-hmm. and I really try to dispel that concept of fair um, in the same way that we do with disease. It, it, it's not necessarily fair who has to deal with it, but reality is it's here on your doorstep Mm -hmm. and you're going to have to face it. And and here is a loving God who has provided his own flesh and blood as the solution to face it. And that doesn't take away the pain, Mm -hmm. right? But we have a God who does not leave us, but resides with us in that pain and manifests himself through his word, through his church as we look ahead with hope to that resurrection when that perfect world is restored. And and I, I totally agree that as we're helping people and, and we're dealing with these personal issues, why is this happening to me? It could be death. It could be disease. It could be disaster. There, there's there's ministry that we can offer and, and just coming alongside people and suffering with them. Uh, that's important, but also being able to answer those questions and to point out Jesus is acquainted with sorrows. He's the man of sorrows from Isaiah 53. And so he, he uh, identifies and, and knows what that's like to suffer because he suffered for us. But as pastor said, there's hope and there's going to come a new heaven and a new earth where all of this will be gone. All right. John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And so to come alongside those people that are suffering and to point out, we are not going to have perfection here. Uh, We will have it when we get to be with the Lord. And in the meantime, we want to continue by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk with the Lord and to follow him no matter what happens. Great. So question um, throw out to you too is, um, how do we reconcile that Christ loves all people with our current culture's demand for tolerance and acceptance of all people's actions or how they identify? On one level, it's a definitional question. Okay. I think what specifically do we mean by love? Mm-hmm. And again, if you're like me, you have your um, your metaphors that you return to time mm-hmm, right? and time again <laughs> because the questions are perennial. Right, right. And for me, the metaphor here is the young child, I may or may not be speaking from personal experience, who at the age of four reached up upon a stove and, you know, grabbed a pot of boiling <laughs> oil and things didn't go so well for the child. Mm-hmm. Well, what does the loving parent do? The, the loving parent will smack the kid's hand and say, no. Don't touch that. And what may be perceived as mean or hateful is actually an act of love and protection. And if anything, 
I would think the abusive parent is the one that says, you know what, you're your own autonomous person. I'm going to let you choose for yourself whether or not you want to touch the hot stove. Mm -hmm. That love doesn't always say yes. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the truest act of love is that which says no. And I sometimes I'm concerned that if we view love as saying yes to whatever um, manifests itself as what a person wants to do, maybe what we're really loving is ourselves in the sense that we don't want to feel bad by telling somebody right. no. And that's not true love. That's narcissism. Right. Right. Dr. Alice. Yeah. I love Ephesians 4, which says, speak the truth in love, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so that's what we're doing. As Pastor said, if the child's going to reach for whatever it is, a hot stove, an electrical outlet, yeah, in love, you make sure that they don't do that, right? And so, well, how do we reconcile this idea of God loving us, and yet we should accept everyone as they are? The, the whole idea of being a disciple is of being a follower of Christ. Mm -hmm. in, in Luke 6.40, Jesus says the disciple will be just like his teacher. And so if we're going to be growing to be more and more Christ-like, yeah, the Lord loves us and forgives us. But then like the woman caught in adultery, we're called to go and sin no more and to, and to repent and to live that daily life of repentance, understanding there are ways that are not God's ways. And I'm called to walk in 180 degrees away from that, following the Holy Spirit and following after Christ. And so I could identify or I could think in a certain way that the world tells me. But once I'm following Christ, I understand, no, it's his way because he's the God who made me, designed me, and has got his will laid out, which is best for me. Right. And so that's why, again, it, we don't just stay as we are, right? We're received into the Lord's family, but now we continue to grow more and more Christ-like as we walk in that daily repentance. And that's one thing that's always a great connection, I think, as Lutherans, certainly, as we hold on to sinner saint, um, the true work of sanctification in our lives that the Holy Spirit brings is that I hope that, again, as our young people are maybe confronted with some of those stuff to say, like, hey, I'm right here with you needing God's forgiveness. Um, and like you said, Dr. Alice, day by day, repentance, receiving forgiveness, growing in that too, and to be able to have compassion on people who are, as we see it, maybe being deceived by sin. And and to, and to really, I think you talked about this, Dr. or Pastor Cox, is to think deeply about ourselves before we arrogantly look at somebody dealing with these things to also certainly look at ourselves and say like, man, we're needing that forgiveness too, and how that can, out of compassion, then connect with people and speak the truth to them. Yeah. C.S. Lewis uses that uh, metaphor of one beggar telling another beggar yes. where to find food. <laughs> right. 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 And that's it. I, I'm mm -hmm. As a youth worker, I've looked at my students and said, look, in Christ, I'm your older brother who's already <laughs> gone yes. through it ahead of you. Yeah. And yeah. I promise this is from a place of love and wanting to see you not suffer some of the pain that I've had to endure mm -hmm. because of my own poor choices yes. or lack of viewing reality as it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. Uh, so talking about, uh, again, maybe a little bit of a, a shift here without going into a whole explanation of Old Testament scripture necessarily, but a question I know that has come up, it's been placed before me at times, um, has been, why did Jesus have to die on the cross for our sins to be forgiven? If God is a powerful God, why didn't he just have the power to forgive us without killing his own son? Can you answer that in a few minutes? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, and, and again, Paul gets into this uh, in Romans and also in First Corinthians, that in a sense, for there not to be justice, mm-hmm. for there not mm-hmm. to be consequence, for yep. there not to be bloodshed, is, and again, I'm just living these metaphors right. today, aren't I? <laughs> it's like the teacher that walks in the room and makes all kinds of threats, but when it comes time mm. for the threats to not be mm-hmm. carried out, mm-hmm. what is taught is that sin isn't serious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what happens then is sin grows. But by the very nature of who God is, consistent with love and consistent with justice, while in his love, he provided means by which to restore his bride to him, uh, the price that needs to be paid is one that transcends what the bride can do. At the end of the day, and and this is uh, the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus, and I know we're we're going deep here, Mm -hmm. but uh, death is required to cover the sins, Mm -hmm. but the only one who can die for all people for all times is one who is eternal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet God who is spirit cannot die. Therefore, God must become man who can die. And so that pulls everything together in that uh, for God to be able to snap his fingers and just kind of set things back goes back to the same conundrum we have with Mm -hmm. the question of the problem of evil in Mm -hmm. the first place, Mm -hmm. that if God stops the spread of evil at some point and says, well, no further than this, what's happened is we're back in this robotic state, um, but that a true price has to be paid and he is the only one who Mm -hmm. can pay it. Mm -hmm. Dr. Alice. Yeah, there's not much more to be said. When the Lord in the garden told Adam and Eve, if you eat off this tree, you will die, Mm -hmm. right? Dying, you'll die. And so death enters the world because of their disobedience. But God doesn't leave us there. He has a way of salvation in Christ. But as pastor said, this eternal God was the only one who could take human flesh, live perfectly, and then die for our sins. So we didn't have to have that eternal death in, in our uh, future. I feel like when, when that question has been posed to me, it's usually by someone who does not want to take, as you put it, the seriousness of sin mm-hmm. seriously. <laughs> and either either for their own, looking at their own lives, or that that's just like the part that sometimes it has to be wrestled with. That this is how serious the fallenness and brokenness of the world is and, wh- and what kind of sacrifice had to be made for that to be forgiven. So yeah, uh, great stuff there. Uh, speaking on that line, you both have mentioned this, I think. I know Faith did in our last episode too. So maybe Dr. Ellis, I'll, I'll go with you. Is what are maybe uh, a four, uh, or excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, what are a few minimal facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that are helpful to discussing maybe in that conversation with an unbeliever? How do we support our young people? And what are those facts that we point to in scripture or other places um, that again, point to uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead? Sure. So as we take a look at the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, a historical event, what's fascinating is the gospel writers will use women as uh, eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. And in that culture, uh, women would not have been held in high regard. And so the reality of, no, this is what happened. And the gospel writers are telling it like Mm -hmm. it is. Mm Uh, these women were some of the earliest eyewitnesses to that, right? Uh, next, because Jesus rose and appeared to the apostles uh, as uh, they go out and spread the news, this is now common knowledge. And in Acts, when Paul's on trial in, in Acts 26, he, he, he 
says to King Agrippa, uh, this didn't happen in a corner, right? This is public knowledge that Christ is risen from the grave. And again, in, in, when he's on trial, he's appealing to a hostile audience. King Agrippa, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. The grave is empty. Mm-hmm. As the, the message continues to spread, uh, Josephus, who's not a Christian, but he's a first century man, records the reality of Jesus' existence. He was a good man, uh, followed by many people. And then he records that Pontius Pilate put him to death in the reign of uh, uh, Tiberius Caesar, or, uh, Caesar. And then he says, his followers say he's alive three days later. Maybe he was the Messiah. Now, mm-hmm. Josephus doesn't believe it, mm-hmm. but he's recording the reality of it. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at those things, and then finally with the apostles who, except for John, who seems to have died of natural causes, all of them die a martyr's death. They're willing to witness to the reality that Jesus is God, the Son of God, their Lord and Savior. These, these are powerful arguments for the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Fantastic. Pastor Cox, anything else you'd add to that? Yeah, just to um, the presupposition of all of that, which can't be overlooked, is that Jesus actually died on the cross also. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know uh, Dr. Alice is, you know, presupposing that, but what I found to be helpful in terms of thinking about our audience for the podcast, Hank Hanegraaff uh, wrote a book called Resurrection, mm-hmm. and he uses an acronym, FEAT, F-E-A-T, to remind us of kind of those four points, the fatal torment that he really died. And then, um, as Dr. Alice mentioned, the empty tomb has to be explained mm-hmm. because dead bodies don't get mm-hmm. up and leave. Mm-hmm. And all of the explanations that are put forward by those who would want to deny the resurrection, the explanations fall on their faces. Mm-hmm. And, and you could spend an entire podcast talking about that. Right. And then again, he appears not just to those who were hoping to see him, but those who completely did not expect to see him, including his own brother who didn't believe him. And Paul, who was busy accosting the church when Jesus appears, and finally, you have that transformation in multiple ways in terms of, of uh, the religion as it was being practiced by Jews at the time and how that transformed, as well as the fact that you have these men who go to some of the most vile martyrs' deaths we could conceive mm-hmm. right, right. of. Not because they were perpetrating a hoax, it just doesn't fit, but because they were firmly convinced that this man they spent three years with really is God who rose from the dead. Great. So uh, one thing, again, this can be one of these topics that we could talk a lot about. And so one of the things I might say too, is if you've got other resources, you would point people to on this topic, throw Mm -hmm. these in, but we're going to talk about scripture itself um, as again, why is it a reliable recording of history of truth, all those things. So what, where's maybe go to things that you have uh, that when you talk about the reliability of scripture, uh, that you would point people to as either just kind of baseline, maybe discussion points, or also resources that you would point them to for more learning. I've always enjoyed um, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's uh, an excellent resource. It's uh, got a lot of information when it comes to uh, why we can rely on scripture and these manuscripts from Old and New Testament. So that's a great resource. I always point people toward. Great. 
Um, yeah, one of the things I go to and the key source for me uh, was uh, Law and History, and I'm worried I'm butchering the title, by John Warwick Montgomery, mm-hmm. um, where he gets into, and in fact, I know it's been re-released with a third term in the title, but I'm showing my age, <laughs> um, where he really does get into, he starts at, at the claims of Jesus, but the, of being God and vindicating it through the resurrection, and then wrestling with well, how do we know that what's recorded in Scripture is true? And approaching it in a sense where he's looking at the evidence we have, and uh, much like a legal scholar, and I mean, that's really what lawyers do is they reconstruct history as they try to discover what truly, what really occurred, that everything lines up in such a way that there is no better explanation. Mm -hmm. The reliability of the Gospels in their presentation of Jesus Christ is really without true and honorable criticism. And then once that's established and you have Jesus in those gospels, putting his seal of approval on the rest of scripture, all of scripture comes along with his resurrection. Great. Is it uh, history, law, and Christianity? There it is. is. All right. Thank thank you, Google. That was Google. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So, yeah, great resource there. Um, And again, and that's such, that can be a long time. Faith talked about this in our last episode. I mean, going into deeper, it can be wonderful conversations with young people looking at the history, uh, you know, looking at maybe some of those key questions that come up to try to refute scripture. And as I think you said, Pastor Cox, that there are so many um, ways in which we're able to show uh, the, the really the consistent record of scripture um, until the versions that we have today in, uh, translate in other languages. But going back to the Greek and Hebrew, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, um, and what a rich history there is of, of again, how we have our word for today. Um, I want to talk about a topic that I know we get asked about a lot, but that's around the topic of evolution. Um, and we get into that. We, I know we, we are asked for resources of, uh, a lot about that. So maybe uh, what are some of the theological implications that you've seen around someone who maybe accepts a very broad understanding of evolution. One place to start, and this isn't necessarily an implication, but I think it's a reality we need to address, is when we attempt to juxtapose our Christian faith and the concept of, of macroevolution, we run into a radical inconsistency. Mm-hmm. I truly believe the two are mutually exclusive of one another because the very mechanism by which evolution works as we understand it um, in its context of of culturally speaking and how it's taught in science classrooms and so forth, the mechanism is death. Mm -hmm. But scripture makes it quite clear that death is the final enemy Mm -hmm. to be conquered. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so death is what requires Jesus and if you want to take a concept of evolution and, and maybe argue, well, God created the world through evolution, you, you're forced to face that what you're doing is calling evolution good as mm-hmm. God puts that stamp of approval in the Hebrew, uh, good, good, which mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. You know, interpret very good. And then there's no need for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is we really wipe away the very purpose for Jesus mm-hmm. altogether when we try right. to put the two together. That's why I think they're mutually exclusive mm-hmm. of one another. And that's not often easy for people to hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a reality. It's not a scientific argument. But it is my argument when I'm speaking to people who claim God's word as true, who claim Christ as their own, to say, 
well, let's think about what you're actually claiming when you try to put these two together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Alice, any more on that? Uh, yeah, just to echo, uh, atheists have pointed out if this uh, opening chapters in Genesis is not true, uh, there's no God, there's no Adam and Eve, there's no fall, and therefore you do not need Jesus Christ. We live our lives, mm-hmm. we live and die, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's got huge ramifications mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. for our lives, for our purpose, for our destiny. And so, um, yeah, it, the, the clear reading of that narrative, it's not poetic, it's not symbolic, it's, it's meant to be taken literally. Uh, this is where we came from, here's what our problem is, and here's the solution in Christ. It's very important that we don't water that or compromise on that. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I appreciate, at least I'll speak for my experience going through the seminary that I think was a response to maybe as evolutionary thought had came more into our world. Uh, I think it was that point to talk about the implication of Christ's death, resurrection, and the hope of of the new creation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think probably growing up, I didn't hear about new creation as much maybe. And I think talking about that gives that purpose of Christ, why right. he came, why he died, why he rose again and what we're waiting for. And I think that again speaks to that, like you said, that good, good creation that God gave us is what Jesus is coming to restore. Um, and I think that just adds to that fullness of when we talk about Christology um, and what Je- who Jesus is for us, it's a beautiful, again, kind of bookend that we can spend some time on with young people to see as, again, another reason why we profess Christ and why he had to come. Right. And if I may add, too, when one um, wrestles with, let's say, the evidence, you were asking about the implications or even uh, the evidence of evolution, we have to be really careful about not getting sucked into what is purported to be evidence that actually has some underlying presuppositions that don't look at all of the different possible ways of interpreting Mm -hmm. the evidence around us. Um, For example, one could explain the Grand Canyon by virtue of a little tiny trickle that Fred Flintstone once visited and Mm -hmm. stepped over um, that over time because of erosion became the Grand Canyon. Well, the same evidence that leads to that sense of evolution and leaves behind in the rocks that the very movement would also be explained by a worldwide flood happening much quicker with much more force. And it's easy to get detracted by somebody who puts a one reading of evidence as the evidence rather than looking at the evidence and asking what are the different ways that we can understand this and what do those ways point to us and how do those ways combined create a consistent view. Um, And so I think that's really important to be able when students ask those questions, especially a really pointed question about a specific piece of evidence that is put forth as being, here's the conclusive evidence Mm -hmm. of evolution is asking, well, can this evidence be interpreted Mm -hmm. differently? Mm -hmm. Is it the interpretation that's being put forward rather than the evidence really being celebrated? No, no, that's a that's an excellent point. Uh, Yes, for example, if you take a look at the idea of the missing link, the question is always from which missing link did humans uh, uh, come from? It's not did we (laughs) come from Mm -hmm. link? No, that's already that assumption is already there. We 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 we've come from. It could be a chimpanzee, it could be a gorilla, it could be an orangutan. 
Uh, and so that's, we, we've got to find which branch we came from. And so that, that presupposition then colors everything you're looking at, as opposed to, as pastor said, now, wait a minute, looking at this and understanding the underlying assumption and then asking a different question. Yeah. And this, and this may not be in your area of expertise, so we can skip on uh, from it, but is there anything that you would point to, to say like, well, here are questions that evolution hasn't answered that come up. Is there anything that sticks out to you at all in that area? Well, I, I think uh, the question of irreducible complexity okay. is one that... Say more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so basically the idea is with evolution over yeah. millions of years, things change slowly. But you get to a point where an organ, let's say the eye, just simply either works or doesn't mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. um, and so that the argument is, well, evolution happens because the animal that has evolved is more successful in producing offspring and spreading that genetic reality. Uh, the problem is you get to a point where there was no purpose for that um, genetic reality mm -hmm. to happen in such a small way. Mm -hmm. And um, so that would be a place where it just fails to really answer the question of how things came to be designed the way they were. Yeah. I am getting so thankful for Dr. Alice joining us from Wisconsin and Pastor Cox being in studio here in St. Louis. Again, this is just part one of a two-part conversation that we'll have about worldview and maybe questions that come from young people. Uh, we point you to, again, to Dr. Alice's book and his resources, the book specifically of Life's Big Questions, God's Big Answers, uh, that where some of these questions came from. Uh, these are maybe some questions that your young people might be asking or maybe, again, an alteration of that. But hopefully this gives you a little bit of just to whet your appetite of resources that are out there from Dr. Alice to be able to engage young people in those questions, uh, point them to God's word and, and point them to Jesus, um, the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, won't have any closing questions. This episode is, uh, we'll continue our discussion in the next episode as we look at a little bit more, maybe worldview or structural uh, philosophical thoughts that our young people are encountering in their lives, um, maybe as they are in educational formats or as they, uh, again, talk with their friends, um, ultimately giving them tools to be able to stand firm in their faith and then also to share their faith with others that others may know Jesus Christ. Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, we'll continue to keep you in prayers as you consider these questions or questions your youth are asking, um, and that as you read the scripture and as you look for, uh, again, that uh, enlightenment that comes from the Holy Spirit, that you'll be encouraged as you share the word of God with other people. Thank you for taking on that responsibility and that desire for young people to know the truth. Engels Podcast is a production of LCMS Youth Ministry and KFUO Radio. To find out more about LCMS Youth Ministry or to find links to resources mentioned, go to kfuo.org slash youth ministry. Thank you for listening and caring for the young people of our church.